Welcome to the BPA University Podcast. This episode, Transparency, Trust, and Transformation, the New Transparency Standards for Data Buyers, originally broadcast July 1st, 2020. For more BPA University podcasts, check out iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. So then on to our topic, transparency, trust, and transformation, the new transparency standards for the data buyer. I had the pleasure to work with our four panelists today as part of the working group at the IAB Tech Lab as it dealt with the datalabel.org initiative or the data transparency initiative. We got involved in the tail end with with the uh, design of a protocol for certification. Bethany Bankston represented Zenith. So from the buy side, what are buyers interested about data? Benjamin Dick at the IAB. Benjamin was the chief staff person that oversaw the entire project and is very can get very deep in the weeds if you have any very deep questions you want to ask. Chris at Alliant is a data provider, uh, so we need to have a conversation from that perspective today, along with a second, Evan Hills from Distillery. All Again, all, all of us participated on the working group, so we can speak to that point. But before we do, it's our tradition in these sessions to start off with, tell us about your personal experience with the pandemic and in alphabetic order. Bethany, how is the virus affecting you? Um, thankfully, no one in my immediate family or circle has been um, impacted by the virus physically. Um, however, I do have family in Spain. Um, and uh, the lockdown there and the martial law um, was pretty a pretty traumatic experience. Um, for me personally, uh, I live in the West Village and I don't have space for a desk. So I've been using my windowsill for a standing desk for the last 15 weeks. Um, while my back is thankful, um, I'm looking forward to sitting in a chair at some point soon. Um, <laughs> And then from a business perspective, um, it's uh, our team calls it the wild, wild west. Um, essentially, you know, we have clients that we work on day to day, um, but who you're working on today might be different. Um, and your whole team might be switched up um, on an hour's notice. So um, it's been a pretty agile process uh, for us responding to client needs um, in, the envir- in the current environment. Yeah. And Ben, how about you? Yeah, uh, thanks, Glenn. I've also been fortunate to have been kind of healthy and safe this entire time. Um, I'm also based in New York City, so uh, working in uh, uh, you know a one-room apartment with my girlfriend is is often a balancing act for sure. Lots of um, you know uh, early status mornings to make sure that you know we're we're uh, parsing out time, like for this meeting, for example. Uh, we're not talking over each other in, in this single room. So that's that's been an adjustment for sure. I'm sure everyone can relate to, you know, having uh, kind of a weird sense of time uh, also um, being kind of stuck in in apartments. And, you know, it's very easy to, to you know, sit down at your desk at eight in the morning and work through eight o'clock at night and not having, you know, not having moved the entire day. So um, just the, the, the day-to-day kind of like work-life balance and kind of adjustments as it relates to uh, just being stationary and kind of stuck um, has it's definitely been an adjustment, but um, um, but yeah, in terms of work, we um, uh, obviously are seeing quite a bit of uh, kind of disruption in the media ecosystem, as I'm sure you've been noting on this series. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, you know, obviously, in addition to the broader 
kind of disruption to the fundamental uh, foundation of, of, of our industry with, with regards to identifiers and kind of the deprecation of third-party cookies and, and many others. Uh, that, in addition to some of the dynamics we're seeing with COVID-specific uh, advertising trends, uh, you know, brand safety filtration and defunding of news, for example, has been very much top of mind for us. So we've been we've been uh, quite busy um, uh, throughout this period. But fortunately for me personally, uh, uh, have stayed uh, healthy and 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 safe, and and my family has been uh, also. So very thankful Good. for that. Great, Chris. How about you? Yeah, likewise. Uh, fortunate to you know remain healthy through all this and. Uh, you know, like everyone, it's really about adapting. Um, you know, I'm outside of the city up in Westchester, so have a little bit more space, but, you know, dealing with uh, two young children at, at two and three years old has been uh, a new balancing act that I've never really uh, dealt with before. Fortunately, I have an office, but uh, the door gets swung open pretty often, so uh, get a few visitors. So if you hear anything in the background, uh, that's why. But, <laughs> on the, yeah, so that's on the, the personal side, but professionally, you know, I think it's really, um, you know, we have a largely centralized team, so it was a little bit of a change of pace, you know, kind of having everyone work remotely, but, you know, I think we were able to, you know, adjust fairly quickly and, and continue hitting our strides with, uh, you know, the work we're producing. It's just, you know, a matter of looking at the market and uh, everything that Ben addressed, but also what Bethany's talking about, like, how do we continue to uh, partner with our members and clients and partners to, uh, you know, kind of address everything that's changing on a day-by-day -day basis. Mm. Evan? Uh, echoing what everyone else said, so far so good in terms of health. Um, I'm also located in uh, in New York and Brooklyn in particular. I was not as smart as Bethany to invest in a standing situation. Um, so my back is, is, is barking, as they say. Um, but you know, overall, safe, happy, healthy. Um, so no complaints there. On the business front, I mean, yeah, echoing what everyone else said, right? We saw material disruption at the end of end of March, early April, uh, and I've seen a, a pretty steady incline since then to the point where June is, you know, back approaching plan, um, which has been a, a really nice adjustment for us. And then, um, you know, trying to make sure that the whole team is uh, comfortable. You know, we we everyone's headquartered in New York, uh, and so we've had to go from you know everyone being in the same place and 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 batting ideas about. Um, so trying to figure out how to refactor that in a, in a work from home environment and then, you know, how you ultimately plan um, for that as the new normal. So that's kind of the, the fun part, um, in addition to the sport of predicting, you know, which brands are going to snap back and how and why and at what times and all of that. So it's been a it's been a good experience uh, um, for everyone, I think. Absolutely. All right. So to our questions, first one's up for Ben. And uh, this talks about datalabel.org and what that initiative is. And I, I'm thinking many of our audience are not familiar if they're on the B2B side, um, perhaps they think of it as list rental, but not really as much into the data as we're about to talk about. So I think this is going to be informative for all. But tell us a bit about datalabel.org. What is it? Why is it? And so on. Yeah, sure. So I uh, would encourage everyone to just pop that into your browser, datalabel.org, and check out the website. In essence, it's a, a dedicated uh, uh landing site for the data transparency standard so it captures not only some background in terms of why the standard was created by the tech lab last year but also information about uh the corresponding compliance program um and it's also going to be the uh kind of uh portal through which tech lab members can access um uh data labels which we'll talk about in, in a moment which are in essence a uh, minimum set of disclosure requirements for anyone selling data to a data buyer um, this is something that uh, the Tech Lab had been working on uh, uh, with uh, a number of other trade organizations for about three years before we published it, so a long time coming. 
and we finally got it out the door uh, last year. And the, the folks on this call were uh, core contributors to to the development of the standard, and and, and can speak to it uh, quite well uh, as well as as me. Um, in essence, what what uh, what we did was um, kind of like a nutrition label, establish um, uh, certain key core requirements that anyone selling data needs to include in order for a, a buyer to make an informed decision. Uh, about uh, any given segment, uh, which could include things like auto intenders or uh, in market for X, Y, Z. There's there's uh, hundreds of thousands of permutations and variations of the attributes and, and uh, types of segments that you can buy from uh, a huge um, uh, spectrum of data providers, publishers, uh, dedicated uh, third-party platforms, um, uh, et cetera. But uh, the the uh, the disclosures. Uh, uh, were uh, were built uh, in conjunction with kind of two other uh, pillars uh, that we that we released at the same time. Uh, the first is again the compliance program, um, which basically uh, is uh, an organ uh, you know a program that BPA looks after in conjunction with Tech Lab uh, to audit organizations that are actually uh, adopting the program to make sure that the contents of the label are uh that that buyers can have con confidence in the, the contents of the label itself right um, all the information is self-declared so this compliance program provides uh, a buyer with uh, an extra layer of um of rigor that they can trust the the the, the things that are inside the label uh, and then uh, uh lastly the third piece uh is the audience taxonomy which is a brand new uh taxonomy to uh um, kind of go along with our, our other taxonomies, including content taxonomy and ad product taxonomy. Um, but this is something we need to develop and incorporate into the standard so that there was a uh, standardized way to actually um, compare uh, like segments across uh, different vendors, um, given that naming conventions can be wildly different. So um, it's a new standard that is actually a required field in this other standard, the data transparency standard. So um, very multifaceted project, took a really long time, lot, very political, uh, as I'm sure everyone on the, the, the call can attest, uh, and uh, ultimately it's something that we, we launched last year and we're starting to kind of ramp up uh, over the next few years. Um, and uh, with that, I'm happy to kind of uh, um, bring in Bethany or, or Evan for any additional color, but um, that's, that's the thousand foot view of the Data Transparency Center that we launched last year. All right, okay. Well, let's get into some questions about it um, for all of the group. You know, what is the problem for which data label solves? Um, Bethany, as a buyer, how does it help you? Um, as a buyer, uh, you know, my team is responsible for audience strategy, both from a prospecting and um, a retained perspective. And when we look at our prospecting audiences, um, we constantly come up with questions, um, you know, specific to campaigns, right? So if I'm working on a retailer, um, whose uh, campaign is around back to school. Um, things like data age are actually really important to me. Um, being able to, you know, I can ask the, the data provider to um, uh, create specifications around custom segments, but not knowing how long a data, uh, data elements have been sitting in their database, um, has been problematic in the past in terms of um, the purity of segments um, when we're uh, pushing prospecting segments into the market for particular campaigns. Mm. And Evan, this uh, you can speak, I think, a bit to this, what we're seeing here with the ID number and the segment name and our five categories. 
Yeah. Um, so, you know, from a, from a data seller perspective, there's a few things that we're really excited about. Um, one, and, and Ben touched on this, is um, this is an opportunity for us as an industry to put together a common lexicon to actually describe a data segment, right? Bethany just talked about data age being really important for back to school shopping. Um, and I think that's, that in and of itself is a conversation that would have been hamstrung by trying to define what data age means um, uh, this time last year, right? So from that standpoint, we think it's awesome. Um, we also believe that the, the importance of transparency in terms of what goes into a segment, how a segment's created, et cetera, um, is particularly important. And again, it's always been sort of a, a company-specific approach to that. Um, so, you know, I think what excites me and, and Distillery the most is the fact that um, we have a, we have a, a, a now industry-accepted means of describing data segments um, and can start conversations about, you know, why we believe that our methodology is better or different from someone else's. Um, and have a more kind of elevated discussion with regards to data, which we ultimately believe will yield a, a cleaner ecosystem um, and also better campaign performance as well for brands. Yeah, for anyone who's unfamiliar with this space, I mean, the status quo without a standard is what you see on the right side here, the, the graphic. You see a, a, a generic descriptor like BMW auto intender and an ID count, uh, and that's largely it within the, the marketplaces uh, that support uh, data uh, buying and selling. Um, so, so uh, you know, given the fact that the industry is probably uh, close to 12 billion now, that, that, that 10 billion that you see on the, the, the screen is from a few years ago, 12 billion dollar industry, um, obviously that lack of transparency about the contents of what's inside the segment is quite problematic and, and uh, you know, creates a, uh, an environment uh, right for, um, uh, uh, for uh, shady things happening, so to speak, right? Uh, so this standard is largely intended to uh, to address um, the the lack of transparency in such a large market. Right, uh, and oh. I think Evan alluded yep. to it. Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Chris. Uh, no, Evan alluded to it a, a little bit, but I think you know there's additional opportunity for discovery. Um, you know, where segments were previously named similar, I think having that additional visibility into how it's built and um, you know the different processes, you know, gives a buyer an opportunity to see where data sets might be additive or complementary and um you know where it previously might have just looked the same on the surface level right so for those of our attendees today who are familiar with b2b or or a b2c report that bpa would produce just think of it as the time before those reports existed and the taxonomy existed so that when you went to a typical table in a BPA report, no matter whose report you picked up, that table spoke to the same thing and used common language. Not necessarily demographics, but you know, source and age and, and whatnot that we report. So now fast forward into what the datalabel.org has done is basically give a common standard format and a taxonomy, which is a, a big help. So these, there's a few screens now, Ben, I think three that we've got to give the audience a sense of what is the information that's now been certified in the reports, if you will. Yeah, sure. So um, the previous screen showed you the, the status quo scenario, which was ID count and uh, descript description, right, of, of the ID, as well as like the name of the provider. Uh, the standard adds an additional 18 fields to the two that that currently exist so up to 20 fields uh, that are now required uh, to to meet the criteria of the data transparency standard um, there's variation in that depending on whether the attribute was sourced online versus offline if it's online then it's 16 fields offline uh, there's additional onboarding information that you need to provide that bumps it up to 20. Um, but ultimately um, there are there are three sections that the working group uh, split these requirements into 
the first is the summary, which provides just baseline information that a, that a buyer might need to uh, uh, look at um, uh, when browsing through any uh, uh, you know dozens of segments within their their, their uh, platforms. Uh, but ultimately, what this this provides is you know the name of the provider, the standardized name associated with the audience taxonomy that I mentioned before. Um, uh, the uh, segmentation criteria or, or business rules that the, the provider is using to determine that uh, you, you know the IDs in the segment belong to an auto intender or you know uh, uh, ex you know in market for refrigerators etc. Uh, what are the rules that, that that they've applied to the the segmentation criteria that they you know um, uh, and why that attribute was tied to that identifier? Um, audience precision level refers to the extent to which um, the uh, IDs in the segment are referring to an individual, a household, a business, or simply just advice if there hasn't been any kind of reconciliation there. Um, basic counts of IDs, so how many IDs are contained uh, or, or uh, entities, you know, individuals, households, et cetera, are contained within the segment. Um, the types of IDs, meaning uh, to what extent can this segment be applied across different channels that have different technology environments, browser-specific uh, targeting re largely requires cookies, and so um, if you're trying to find this group of auto intenders across, um, you know, both browsers and mobile devices, you probably want to make sure that that uh, that field has both cookie IDs and mobile IDs, as, as well as potentially platform IDs as well. Um, geography uh, rounds out um, the 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 this section. It's basically um, you, you know the geography associated with the coverage of the segment. Um, so if these people were found or these attributes are applied to uh, certain DMAs or states or regions or countries uh, or economic areas like the EU, for example, um, which are sometimes the use case depending on, um, you know, local laws around how data is actually captured and, and, and activated. Um, and then there's, uh, there's a, a, a link to a required link to privacy policies, um, given that and this is probably, to be frank, the weakest part of the first version of this field. Um, we want to build this out quite a bit more, the privacy section specifically, given um, the importance to uh, opt in and opt out mechanisms to uh, actually have a legal right to use the data. Um, but unfortunately, because the, the, the laws in, in most geographies were still very much in flux when we, when we released this thing, um, we wanted to punt the, the, the privacy part to future versions of the label once we have a better sense of um, uh, of what the law actually says. Um, and I'm right. sure you guys are quite familiar with the, the permutations of CCPA, um, but think about that uh, times 20, right? When you think about mm -hmm. the, a global standard um, and that's kind of what we what we need to navigate uh, moving forward. But um, this is just the first section. I think there's a few other slides here, right, Glenn? Yep, audience um, details. And uh, Evan, Bethany, uh, Chris, if, uh, please feel free to chime in uh, if, with any additional color. You guys were involved in uh, almost as much as I was in, in defining a lot of these things. So please do um, chime in if, if, if I'm missing something important. Um, so uh, sec second section here of the three, uh, audience details, this provides a little bit more uh, uh, information about where the data came from in terms of, you know, was it sourced from uh, um, app behavior, app usage, uh, geographic location, uh, credit card data, um, there's both a combination of online and offline data sources here. Um, if you do choose offline data sources, that would trigger the, the need for the, the next section that I'll be talking about, the on-border details. Um, but ultimately, this captures um, the vast majority of data sources that one could use to, uh, to organize a segment uh, or, you know, basically assign attributes to an identifier. 
Um, that inclusion methodology is uh, is a reference to what the relationship is of the provider to the attribute. So did they directly observe the attribute, meaning like, did they see that person walk onto a car dealership lot themselves? And that's why they think that that person's auto, auto intender. They inferring that based on some set of logic, are they modeling it? There's all sorts of ways uh, uh, that uh, one could uh, have confidence in the attribute itself, but obviously there's gonna be quality considerations that, that you need to think about um, depending on the relationship between the provider and the attribute. Um, audience expansion and cross device expansion refer to, uh, well, audience expansion refers to the extent that, you know, a segment was modeled from a seed set. Um, cross device expansion refers to the extent to which you're including other IDs that you think are associated with an individual or household because those IDs are uh, tied to that individual or household's, uh, um, uh, the, the, there's multiple kind of IDs associated with or uh, uh, or with various devices tied to that that uh, individual or household. So you're bringing those in because you think, you know, you're, the the cell phone is the same person as the computer, um, so to speak. Um, audience refresh cadence and source look back window. Uh, these uh, refer to the extent to which the 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 data uh, how how frequently the data is uh, is refreshed, meaning like when are IDs added or removed. Um, is that daily, weekly, monthly? Um, so how fresh is the segment, so to speak? Um, and then source look back window uh, refers to um, how far in the past a, a, an action can be taken uh, to, uh, uh, to be included in the segment. Um, are they looking at, at activity, which is different, right, than the, the, the refresh cadence. Uh, this refers to um, uh, how, far, how far back in time you're looking for a specific behavior for to be included in the segment itself. Um, so lots of information there. Uh, I'm sure I breezed through that uh, way quicker than, than I, I should have for anyone who's new to this to actually absorb it, but um, please do uh, feel free to go to datalabel.org also, and you can pull this up directly on your, your laptop or, or computer uh, and, and read this text for yourself and, try and, and, and spend some time with it. Um, it's, it this, this information is, is readily available as well as some of the compliance program details. And then the next group now, this is where are we taking a step further on this or? Yeah, so oh. these last four fields here are uh, basically um, the offline condition, conditional fields that are required if the, the, the uh, data was sourced from offline uh, places like census records or surveys or uh, sale records. Um, the most important one here, I won't go through, go through all of them, but the most important one here is the um, the strength of the association between that offline attribute and the online identifier that that is that that they need to couple with that attribute in order to activate it, uh, and so the the first field here is um, is uh, input ID or match key. Um, uh, you you choose all that apply. Uh, in essence, the, the the type of match key and the number of match keys that are used to make that association during onboarding will provide a buyer with. Uh, important information about the extent to which they can trust the association itself, right? Uh, right. And so, um, so I would just call that one out, without going into detail on the the other fields here. But that that uh, that's the idea is that um, we we needed uh, a lot more detail uh, uh, from uh, from onboarders and from offline data providers to make sure that that um, there's information uh, available to buyers uh, about how um, how the onboarding process actually transpired. 
Right. And for our membership, this is a, a critical point. So what we're providing to the BPA member today is an understanding of what is best practice in handling the data, particularly the marriage of offline with online data. So if you're on the publishing side and you're looking at this now and you're saying, okay, I've got all this offline, meaning you have qualification records that you've gotten, and you now want to link that up with some online activity and build out user profiles, please go to datalabel.org and download this information because it's a good guide towards what you should be including in your information set. So Chris and Evan, you're both uh, two of the top three. Epsilon is the third, which is owned by Publicis. And so Bethany has a finger in, although she's coming from the buy side, she doesn't work for Epsilon. But Epsilon, Alliant, and Distillery are the three companies so far that have been certified to this compliance program. Um, what was the difficult or the easy parts, if you will? These are the three bits, the label, people processes, and technical. Evan? Uh, yeah, I can take off, yeah. Oh, Chris? Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one thing I will say, um, you know, after going through and completing it and for anyone considering, you know, something that really helped us up front was, you know, taking inventory of all of our existing documentation and, you know, seeing where, um, you know, we had um, areas we could potentially repurpose or, you know, tailor for this particular initiative. At the time, you know, we were in the midst of our due diligence for CCPA and um, we had gone through other certifications like SOC 2. So, we felt like we were able to come into it pretty well prepared to hit the ground running. So, you know, would make that recommendation for anyone. I think what was maybe more challenging was on some of the segmentation criteria. So, you know, we have a, a scaled uh, audience taxonomy with thousands of audiences, and um, we have many of which are deterministic, but also a large suite of modeled audiences. So, you know, deterministic is fairly easy, right, to, to describe. But when it comes to the modeling side, I think you know it took a few iterations to find that balance of the right amount of information that's not too complex or confusing for for buyers and you know, requires a little bit of an encyclopedia and uh you know but accurately describing the processes and and uh delving into that transparency so but also on the flip side you know maintaining anything that we may feel is uh proprietary so in the end i think we found that right balance that that will serve the market well Yep. Evan? Um, well, I would say that the easy part was designing the, the compliance program with, uh, with everyone. And I think the, the more difficult part was uh, actually, you know, taking our own test. Um, but no, I, I think, you know, for, for us, the, the, uh, the most difficult part, it speaks to, I think, the strength of this program as a whole, um, which is how do you describe what the hell you do with data to a third party that doesn't know? They're not in the weeds. They don't live and breathe it every day. Um, and I think for us, that was always the, 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 not necessarily the most challenging part, but the part that required the most effort was explaining to, you know, someone from BPA um, exactly how the technology works and then trying, you know, taking a couple of swings at that plate to make sure that the way that we're describing it um, accurately and, and, and factually represents the way that we're doing it, right? Because there's a lot of, you know, tribal truths at any given data company. Um, and, you know, if you've been doing it for 12 years, like Distillery has, it becomes really easy to just sort of get stuck in your ways in terms of the way that you describe things and, and having a, a third party that's willing to dig in the weeds with you and, and, and kind of try and make sense with it, I think was, was both the, the most rewarding, but also the, 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 the part that required the most effort. Yeah, and I think from our perspective, the, the technical capabilities, how the technology worked and how the people and processes worked, I mean, that, that was a task, but it, that, was, that was well done. The fun part was the label itself. So we were always thinking of Bethany and saying, okay, if Bethany was looking at this, 
would this make sense? And for example, we'd have something that would say, this is a list of uh, Skippy peanut butter buyers. And when you do a deeper dive and you get into where the actual attributes are and where they come from, you find out, no, they never bought Skippy, they bought Jiffy peanut butter. So if the list had been described as peanut butter buyers, it would have been fine. Or if it, they were trying to say, well, if you're the manufacturer of uh, Jif and you want to get customers who've bought Skippy, okay, fine, that makes sense. But so we had a lot of fun going through the actual labels themselves and looking at how things were described and, and thinking of Bethany in terms of when she's on the buy side, we got to make sure that this all makes sense and it is, does follow uh, standard taxonomy. So then, Evan, how does distillery get its data? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, overall, we, we, we sit on exclusively um, digital data, so we don't have a concept of offline data like, like Chris and Alliant do. Um, and the way that we source it is generally from um, companies that have um, aggregations of uh, individual publishers' data that they can then sell to distillery. Um, so think, you know, individual properties themselves are media companies, um, and then, you know, more, more commonly publishing utilities, commenting, sharing, those kind of tools, um, as well as SDKs in the app space is generally how we get um, um, our data, um, as well as, you know, various platforms that, that have a role in, um, in the advertising ecosystem. Um, and, you know, for us, the thing that we focus on the most is not the raw data that comes into our system, um, since we view that as, as roundly commoditized to a degree, um, but rather how you make sure that the data that actually hits the models is is clean. Um, and that's where we, we spend the most of our time, making sure that any kind of fraud or anything that might throw off the quality of the models, and thus the performance of the campaign is, is sequestered. Um, and then, you know, everything we do is modeled, and, and Chris alluded to this um, in terms of having to... Uh, having a challenge in terms of describing exactly how you model something. Um, and so, you know, for us, a, a big focus is also making sure that, you know, when someone wants to understand more about what goes into a model, um, we're able to be transparent about how it's built, what are the top indexing behaviors that might lead to someone being scored into or out of that audience, um, and just generally trying to take a, take a, what's ultimately a, a pretty sophisticated piece of machine learning um, and do our best to put a, a, a human face on it so that, you know, someone like myself might actually be able to make sense of it without a PhD. And Chris at Alliant? Yeah, so for the most colorful slide of the deck. Uh, <laughs> so uh, at our core, Alliant is a cooperative database. So you know, at the top there, we work directly with hundreds of brands and product lines who are members of our cooperative. And to protect that first party data, it's transformed in what we call our data hub, where you know it creates an aggregated view of consumer purchasing behavior across all of our members. So billions of transactions uh, across hundreds of brands. And in that transformation process, we're generating um, you know, thousands of predictive variables along with permission data sets and match keys um, for all of our custom modeling and audience creation. So we're never reselling a brand's first party data. Um, we have a full suite of products that we generate from that, but since we're focusing on the data transparency initiative today, I've focused on our audiences, but uh, we leverage that data hub and supplemental lifestyle, demo, social, and other data points to build that um, syndicated audience taxonomy that I mentioned earlier. But where we see the most value is kind of in those custom engagements and building custom audiences specific to the brand and, you know, in partnership with the agencies and platforms um, you know, to meet those campaign and KPI needs that Bethany was referencing earlier. And, you know, to help service that, we also have a full-time help desk and, you know, taking those custom requests and really working closely um, to build those audiences. And, you know, uh, we have a full data science team that um, also kind of has that hands-on human touch um, 
consultative approach. And where we see here live ramp and new start, does that suggest that it gets pushed through just those two? Or is that, do I have that right? Yeah, so we are at the offline level, as Evan mentioned, and uh, we partner with two leading onboarders, so Live Ramp and Newstar, and then we also have some direct integrations. And you know, as things like addressable TV become uh, you know more audience driven, um, you know, we can add uh, direct integrations there as well. Mm -hmm. All right, Bethany. So, how do you buy data? Can you explain the process, how you evaluate, and then buy, and then execute, and how do you figure out what's quality or not, and you know, what are your concerns as a buyer when you look at only three companies are certified? So of all your other choices, you know, what concerns do you have about data? Sure. Um, so I think uh, just to, to take a step back um, to explain like what the buying experience is like for those um, who aren't familiar, um, you start with a campaign, right? Or a, a business objective from the brand. Um, so that business objective might be around, let's say, if I were a retailer, um, you know, driving back to school sales for um, uh, my prospecting efforts um, against uh, competitive conquesting. Um, so how this plays out in the in the in the buying process is that um, audience strategy team, my team, in in conjunction with like an investment team, a strategy team, will go and look at the data market and say, okay, um, you know, Alliant, Epsilon, um, MasterCard all have uh, retailer transaction data for back to school, and I'm going to utilize these data providers um, as uh, third-party sources for my prospecting efforts. So when my back to school campaign goes live, um, I'm conquesting against particular retailers. Um, so that's broadly like what happens during the process. Um, I would say that, you know, being a part of this label, being a part of this um, initiative uh, as Publicis Media, um, at Zenith, at, uh, you know, within within the Publicis um, network, uh, it's done, the label has done some really important things. Um, so it's provided us, my teams, um, us as publicists, us as investment teams, buyers, um, common language, as um, Evan and Ben were alluding to earlier around um, data source. So in, you know, prior days in, in, in we might have a trader going into a trading desk and saying, okay, I need to do competitive conquesting against an auto intender, and I see that Alliant has a BMW auto intender, so I'm going to purchase that audience. Um, purchase that audience and then see some conversions and then, um, you know, not really think too much about the source of the data, the quality, etc. What the label has done has given us all a common language for data source um seed and model um so you know a year ago uh if i'm talking to a client who may be um more uh has roots in traditional marketing um saying something like seed data um a year ago would have been a very uh difficult or foreign conversation. Now we all have common language to talk about seed data. Um, how that's played out specifically for our teams as buyers is that we actually evaluate data based off of the seed data type. 
Um, so we will look at historic performance data and we will say, okay, we used transaction data, we used location data, we used SDK or SKU-based data, receipt-based data um, as data sources. And for these particular brands, um, location data and transaction data did best for these types of campaigns. So as we've developed that common language amongst our teams and with our, our clients and brands, we've actually shifted the way that we um, strategize and buy data. Um, the other piece that we have done, you know, since we have that common language for transaction, location, et cetera, we're also judging the quality of the data by um, match rates and by uh, seed data sizes over time. So, um, you know, in the past we may have said, okay, BMW auto and tender is this thing, and I don't really know the size of it. it you know, maybe it's two million, maybe it's seven million, and um, you know, I, I buy that audience, the campaign runs, and I'm not gonna think about it anymore. Um, our teams now, as buyers of data, as you know, um, shepherding audience strategy, are collecting that data size over time to understand how it's changing. So, um, specifically, how we look at quality is, you know, if I'm buying from a, a transaction data provider or a location data provider, I'm actually going to ask them what onboarder they use. Do they use ODC as an onboarder? So, you know, when they, if it's a transaction data provider, they're using a PAN, uh, which is a personal account number. They have 2 million um, PANs that go into an audience. And if they use LiveRamp versus ODC versus Newstar for their onboarding, I'm going to look at, um, what that expansion is, and then judge the quality of the performance based off of the onboarder that they're using. Um, last uh, but not least, um, my, my primary concerns right now are um, obviously uh, uh, probably everyone's concerns, the deprecation of the third-party cookie, um, and then impact of iOS 13 and specifically iOS 14 updates that'll come in September. Um, iOS 13, um, I'm just going to do a, a, a little um, reference to a company that did some really awesome research, uh, Location Sciences. They looked at um, user behavior and opt-out behavior um, post iOS 13 update. Um, one of the things that we saw, what, one of the things that came out of this research was um, uh, they saw roughly 46% um, decrease in foreground and background data. Um, so what that means for those who are providing location data is that, um, you know, not just the third party cookie is 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 a worry and a concern, but um, those users that are opting into um, location data, um, that number is going to decrease over time. And so uh, the, the furthest extension of that is that, you know, in 2021, it's likely that we will have less data to work with. Um, and as a buyer, my concern is that prices will inflate and um, the quality will not increase. Um, so I'm excited that the label is um, taking off and there's a compliance program around seed data so that we can have those conversations with um, data providers as they're um, 
as the number of devices that they're able to see through product updates and the quality decreases over time. And I wonder, you know, for we, we keep hearing and reading in the press with the demise of the third party, that first party data is going to become so much more valuable. And so a lot of our publishers are tuning into this saying, you know, how do I how do I get smart about this as we go into the demise of the third party cookie? How do I maximize my relationships and the value that I have in my first party data, either with companies like Alliant and Distillery and Epsilon or or you know direct with with you, Bethany? So I think the interesting times yet ahead of us. All right. So thank you for that. If what we've done here for our audience is asked that they show what does this actually look like, either um, in a direct example or on some interface. So we'll start off with you, Evan, um, obviously with the brand name Distillery, this is you. Tell us what we're looking at here. And if you need me to zoom in on it, I think I can do that, but tell me what we see. Yeah, sure. So um, uh, this is a screenshot of, of specifically the trade desk data marketplace, but pretty much every platform has something that looks and smells a lot like this, be that a DMP, a DSP, or something that lives in the middle. Um, and, you know, I, I think for, for, for us, the thing that we're most excited about with the, the data transparency initiative and the data label um, is the fact that instead of given, uh, being given a, a brand name, distillery in this case, uh, a segment name, uh, which you can see in there, and then various counts of how many IDs are in there, um, you get a ton more information from the data transparency initiative. Um, and so you can actually judge beyond a, a, a very quick, like, gee, does the incidence rate of this behavior that I would expect in, expect in the population actually line up with the segment size or not? Um, you're able to dig a lot deeper into it to, to, you know, how old is the data? Is the data modeled or not? Um, kind of all of the uh, much more nuanced and, and from our perspective, more important questions ultimately. Um, uh, and so, you know, we think that going from what is, you know, for lack of a better term, sort of a 2D view on what goes into a segment, um, which is what you're presented with here. And, and this is, again, consistent across every platform um, to something that's a lot more nuanced and, and allows for um, a greater degree of analysis and, and ultimately a, a more informed buy or no buy decision on the part of the buyers. Um, we think that that's the, the, the biggest kind of step function that uh, in terms of capabilities that the industry achieves through this initiative. And the next slide takes us to a, a different uh, tool, I think, yeah? Yeah, so this is, uh, this is actually a screenshot of our platform called Studio. Um, and we built this um, uh, actually before we, we were aware of the Data Transparency Initiative um, with a goal of helping any person who wanted to buy a distillery data segment, um, be that something that is pre-built like the one you see here, uh, or something that is a, a model or derivative from a brand's first party data set. Um, help our buyers understand exactly what goes into it. And so we provide a bunch of different cuts on top index, top indexing characteristics um, of a given audience, right? So in this case, we're looking at what is that? Uh, New York Yankees fans, sorry, pitchers and catchers report today. So I'm, uh, I'm very excited. Um, uh, and what you see here are first the top indexing categories. So sports, sports fans, electronics, et cetera. Uh, and then the individual distillery created audience segments that index highly for this. Um, and our goal with this platform, and we think that the, the, the data label initiative does nothing but accentuate this, um, is to enable a buyer to say, well, okay, I'm trying to target Yankees fans and given the top indexing characteristics, this seems to be on target with what I would expect or um, it's not and I don't wanna buy this, right? If you're trying to sell a, a, an audience with a lot of luxury signal and all you see are insights that relate to deal seeking and couponing and, and, and sort of um, lower income um, indicators, then that's a good handle that the, the the segment is not actually reaching the set of consumers that it's designed to. 
Um, and so we think that this plays really nicely with, uh, with where the industry is going. And Chris at Alliant. And this so, is basis. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. So Centro is a, a great partner of ours. And this is a just want to give a look at another platform. Uh, this is basis, which is their demand side platform. So like Evan said, you know, similar layouts in terms of how um, data is featured on the left hand side. You see uh, Alliance taxonomy as it's categorized today, um, which is all mapped to the IAB taxonomy as well. But if you hover, you'll get some more information on segment descriptions, size and pricing. And then if you ultimately select that and you know add it to the audience builder in the middle you'll get um, additional information as as you build out uh, your specific segments and you know i think just an important thing to keep in mind is just that reach number and you know when you're looking at top left there you see web and mobile apps are are selected so just keeping in mind uh reach versus uniques as you you know build audiences in these platforms and you know we we supplement this as well with our taxonomy featured on our own website with um, additional attributes and information around our audiences um, in addition to the data label. And you know, anytime we work with anyone on a custom basis, we're looking at the top attributes and um, you know the model strength as you look at the different uh, groups in that audience and you know really helping um, you know our uh, advertisers you know refine their audiences. Cool. And then Bethany, when you go to buy, this is something you look at. Yeah, I'll just cover this quickly. Um, this is an interface of a DMP. Um, my team typically is working in a DMP because we want to understand the overlap between first party and third party um, to really uh, get at the quality. Um, uh, the only thing that I'll, I'll note here is just um, the lack of detail. <laughs> mm -hmm. So we are, we are hopeful that platforms um, like DMPs will uh, have product updates that um, are much more uh, detailed um, in the near future. Yeah, and, and I would suggest, right, that they might take up the taxonomy and the categories that are being provided in the data label, you know, so that we, we sync with that. Yeah. Um, one quick. And then, yep, go ahead. Ben. Thought, uh, in terms of platform adoption more broadly. So obviously the the, the label and the standard that we've created uh, injects a whole lot more metadata at the segment level uh, that will be quite useful. But uh, to to incorporate that uh, in some of these these uh, these large platforms, it's it requires a significant amount of resourcing and prioritization of roadmap. So uh, adoption for them is a significant undertaking uh, and something that we're we're talking to them about on a regular basis. So um, um, if you guys do have access to some of these UIs that are being displayed, uh, um, you might notice some changes over the next uh, year or so. Um, uh, along the data, uh, along these lines, um, uh, some platforms will be different than others in terms of like the degree of adoption, but um, it's uh, currently kind of being uh, being discussed and prioritized right now. COVID has not helped, unfortunately. Yeah, no, it hasn't. And Bethany, did you want to add anything on this slide, or should we advance? You can keep going. Okay. So Ben, how does TechLab market the DataLabel.org initiative? Well, we've got a marketing team of two people. <laughs> and me doing it, uh, as well as the evangelists that we have on, on the call here who actually partook in the, the standard. But uh, datalabel.org is really the um, the dedicated website that we're using to uh, promote the standard uh, and aggregate resources around it, whether it's the uh, upcoming versions of the uh, of the standard itself uh, as it evolves from you know 1.0 to 1.1 to 1.2. 
um, the, uh, the the audience taxonomy uh, as well, uh, compliance program materials. Um, you're also going to, as as I mentioned, as marketplaces start adopting this, they're going to start seeing the, the standard uh, appear there as well. Um, we're also building a dedicated, as I mentioned, a dedicated uh, 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 portal uh, within datalabel.org where tech lab members can also view uh, this in, this metadata from participating data providers. Um, it'll be the same metadata that that can be found within uh, within marketplaces, but really um, provides a significant amount of uh, transparency and line of sight for the tech lab and for BPA also to understand how uh, data labels are being um, kind of filled out, the extent to which they're actually accurate over time, uh, and mm -hmm. help uh, from a from a certification and compliance perspective, make sure we have a, a thumb on the pulse of kind of what's happening within the marketplaces. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, we we very much need to rely um, right now on uh, on you know word of mouth uh, and just the inherent kind of market need uh, that I think most of us can, can acknowledge and understand to actually like get this thing out the door to, to put pressure on folks to to actually adopt it. Um, and uh, the best thing that folks on this call can do is is uh, either um, you know talk to your you know data providers that you might work with or partners that you might work with um, and platforms you might work, work with about this this standard uh, and and ask them what their thoughts are and POVs are and if if they have a, a roadmap for adoption. Um, it's got to be kind of uh, an organic groundswell um, in in order to to actually see this thing become a an everyday kind of piece of. Uh, uh, data buying and selling so mm -hmm. so what are the next steps um, I think you've been... yeah I think I may have jumped the gun on the slide here but but in <laughs> essence um, uh, you know advocate if, if you see the need for this and you kind of understand the value um, please do advocate for it um, ultimately um, uh, because this requires product and engineering resources in order to adopt for most um, uh, uh, marketplaces or providers, um, they need to justify it from a revenue perspective, right? So if their clients and their businesses uh, don't are not asking for it, and then they can't prioritize it. So you guys really need to be the kind of the groundswell. Um, if you work with that providers, um, ask them about their plans uh, around adopting the standard. If you work directly with platforms, do the same. Uh, and uh, um, if you want more information and you're kind of uh, you know not not following the conversation or need need more data uh, uh, about you know what this thing is and why it's important. Um, please do check out uh, datalabel.org or send questions to uh, datalabel at ibtechlab.com, um, which pings the entire team. Um, uh, if you're interested in just more information or the compliance program, um, we'll be able to connect you to the right people. So cool. And for our viewers, we sort of have two more themes we're going to touch on yet. So hang with us. One is more about the privacy and protection regulations, and then also the open letter. Uh, that BPA did for publishers regarding leakage in the bid stream. So stay with us um, on that. Bethany, how is the buyer informed that the data that they are buying comes from a certified company? We've got three now, Alliant, Distillery, and Epsilon. Um, and would that change your way of evaluating if you knew that you were looking at companies that had certified? Um, to address the first point, right now it's word of mouth. Right. It's up to the buyer to ask um, the data providers how they're certified, um, whether they're CCBA compliant, et cetera. Um, and absolutely, yes, uh, it will change um, right now, specifically for my team. We have a we have our own framework where we go through a series of questions that essentially um, ask about compliance, ask about um, 
uh, you know, very similar things that you might uh, that that might be asked or or presented in in the data label, but we're doing it manually now. Um, so uh, if more data providers are um, you know, certified through this process, um, we won't have to ask all of those questions um, and we won't have to take the data providers at their word. We'll, we'll actually know that, yes, they have, they, you know, they're, they are, um, you know, in compliant with this particular um, uh, data collection methodology and so a third party has verified it. Right, so if we, just if I flip back on some slides, you know, this is Adobe's audience manager, this is Centro's basis, and this would be the trading desk. So Ben will tell us the IAB Tech Lab is working with these marketplaces. So you would find a, what Ben, like a checkbox that would say these lists or these companies have been certified amongst everything that you see? That's right, yeah. So not only should the, will the marketplace need to support the taxonomy, the um, when I, and when I say taxonomy, I mean the, the set of metadata that's included in the, the standard itself. So they need to be able to display that uh, and support the information being provided to them by you know, folks like Alliant and, and Distillery and any other data provider that might uh, comply with the standard, as well as indicate very clearly and overtly um, if that company uh, has gone through the compliance program um, that uh, is largely facilitated by BPA. Um, it's probably worth underscoring that you do not need to go through the compliance program in order to support the standard. You can still do that, but the compliance program provides an, an additional degree of assurance uh, that the information that's self-provided by the data provider can be trusted. Um, obviously, there's uh, an incentive to uh, to to uh, make yourself look good if it's going to influence buying behavior. So um, mm -hmm. the, the certification program uh, really gets into the meat of whether or not uh, the, the data itself uh, um, uh, uh, is based on real uh, people and processes and FTEs and technology that 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 sits inside that organization, or if it's um, there's there's room for error, so to speak. Right. So Chris and Evan, now let's switch and talk a bit about data protection and privacy. You know, how does that impact the use of data? And as you hold this data, are you concerned about what permissions are needed and how will data companies ensure that the data they acquire, either directly or through other parties, is compliant with any data regulation? For sure. Um, I think, you know, the first thing that's important for everyone um, uh, who's tuned in to, to be aware of is that up until there was a concept of privacy regulation, um, it was really the, the wild, wild west in, in total. Um, and so, you know, our perspective is actually that um, privacy regulation is, is a great thing, right? It gives everyone objective rules to, to play by um, and makes it so that, you know, similar to how you describe a data segment um, getting standardized through the, the data transparency initiative. Um, privacy regulation um, puts a standard in place for how you can acquire data that you ultimately use for modeling. Um, and so we, we think it's really important. Um, you know, what, what permissions are needed? I, I think that uh, the fundamental question there is, should it be opt-in uh, as it is in GDPR land in Europe, uh, or should it be opt-out as it is in, as it's defined in CCPA? And we suspect in any kind of federal legislation that'll ultimately get passed. Um, and to us, that's actually the thing that, that, that we want the most is for a federal um, uh, set of ground rules for us to play by. So that way we don't have to deal with adhering to either the lowest common denominator for each individual state's privacy regulations, since our assumption is that that'll happen in an end state. Um, and um, we, we, we also would, uh, we, we, we'd prefer um, to, to have kind of one ground rule that we can, we can play by across the board. So, so for us, that, that's kind of our perspective. And then, you know, how do we ensure that the data we acquire is compliant? 
Um, this is a this is a, a a real moving target, but something that we try to focus on aggressively. Um, and so what we've done is we've audited all of our different data providers to make sure they're offer they're offering notice and consent uh, on any of the websites. And I know we've had to do this with third party platforms that we integrate with as well as prove that you know for some of the properties that provide data to us, do they have a privacy policy? Can you opt out? Can I actually go through the opt out process and make sure it works, et cetera? Um, and I think that you know ultimately putting my consumer hat on for a second. Um, this is all good stuff, right? This means and codifies in law that what distillery does and what our industry does as a whole um, is not only uh, allowed and acceptable, but it's something where there's there's you know government acknowledgement that it should exist. Um, and right. so we view all of this as ultimately a positive, um, acknowledging that there's growing pains and, and there's going to be massive shifts in terms of the data that we deal with, um, both now due to privacy regulations and in the future due to um, uh, changes in the ID spaces that, that we model in. And Chris? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, in terms of impact on use of data, I think it's important to, you know, look at protection and privacy as kind of two individual things, you know, with data protection laws maturing over the last 20 years, and there's a good consensus in place in, in terms of things like data breaches and things like that. And it's really the privacy side that's, that's evolving and, uh, you know, has come through in bits and pieces, but, and until we saw kind of more broad sweeping uh, regulations like CCPA and GDPR. Um, and like Evan said, you know, we've been largely a self-regulated industry. And I think if you've been an ethical participant in that, you know, a lot of what we're seeing um, is more about formalizing what we have been doing, following best practices and, um, you know, really formalizing that process and attesting to that, um, you know, for us, in terms of the permissions as a, as a cooperative, we're working closely with our members to ensure all the privacy policies are, you know, communicate the proper use, that any opt-outs are flowing through to us properly, and that anytime updates are made, that, that we're aware and having that conversation. And, uh, you know, just to make sure that, um, you know, we're communicating to the consumers about the use of their data. All right. And Bethany, as a buyer, do you have concerns about proper permissions? Um, as a buyer, I think my my primary concern right now is the um, the vague definitions, um, specifically in CCPA, around what constitutes a business, what constitutes a service provider, and what constitutes a third party. Um, uh, when the language came out um, around these three entity types, um, I spoke to a lot of my partners and asked them, you know, where is your what? How does your how is your company defining um, yourselves under CCPA? And the the broad answer was, um, we don't know yet. Um, the the problem with this is that. Um, there are different requirements for a business, for a service provider, and for a third party. And there's a bit of a, a pass off, um, right? So uh, the business is responsible for the um, opt out and the consumer data. Um, it's a bit vague on the third party and how they're supposed to engage with the business on um, the processes and workflows for opting out. Um, to the, the most logical extent of that is that, um, you know, my concern is around the customer experience. 
if I'm a if I'm a, a customer of a retailer and I opt out of um, this uh, you know retailer's list, but then I end up on another list that ends up being a prospecting segment um, for retailing, and I'm still receiving creative from that brand. For me, as a consumer, it's going to look like I didn't opt out. Mm. Um, so my my primary concern is around um, the vagueness of the law itself and um, uh, the the processes and workflows on the handoff between um, business and third party. Yep. Well, hopefully, I don't think it'll be anytime soon, though. But hopefully, this will get resolved as we go forward. Then we the post demise of the third party cookie. All of us. You know, what do we think see happening going on? Uh, where to begin? Um, so um, a lot is happening. I mean, the, the crack runs pretty deep uh, in the ad tech ecosystem uh, as as identifiers, not just third party cookies, but as identifiers are, are disrupted. Um, Bethany referenced some changes to um, iOS and the availability of IDFAs for, for mobile in-app targeting. Um, we see the writing on the wall for probabilistic identification that's largely used by, by a, a lot of data providers and, and DMPs as well for a number of functions, um, including uh, very important societal kind of functions like identifying fraud and, uh, and illicit behavior kind of in ecosystems. So um, the, whole, the whole thing uh, is, is uh, um, uh, the whole problem space uh, is, is, uh, uh, runs pretty deep. Right, the crack runs deep in the foundation, and that, that that's the the area that Project Rearch within IB Tech Lab is trying to work through. What standards do we need as an industry to maintain some form of addressability, meaning targeting, measurement, attribution, in the open internet to fuel content and services? What are the new standards that we need to create to support these business models uh, of marketers and publishers, while also um, putting consumers kind of at the center of uh, of it all, right? Uh, in terms of uh, transparency and control over the data um, that they uh, uh, can see and feel uh, that their their consumer privacy, like their privacy and personalization preferences, are actually being respected as they navigate the the, the web, uh, and that we create common kind of technology footprints across all of it, right? To uh, to support interoperability for everyone's businesses. So, um, if you guys are uh, IAB or Tech Lab members and want to kind of be on the front lines of those conversations, please do uh, reach out to your, your local uh, regional IAB, whether it's IAB US or IAB UK or, or otherwise, and they can connect you with the, the right folks. But um, uh, long story short, this is this is me saying there is no plan for the post uh, for the demise of the third party cookie. Um, we're working through it right now uh, very quickly. A lot of smart people uh, and um, and urge everyone to kind of lean in and, and uh, get involved. Anyone else want to opine on this? Yeah, um, to, you know, to echo that point, I, I, I think that the um, the press around the privacy sandbox, specifically for Chrome um, earlier in the year, um, and uh, opening up that privacy sandbox um, for developers to test out things like attribution um, and audience taxonomies um, was a really great start. Um, however, and you know, there, there is somewhat a plan there. Um, however, when I've spoken to like engineers and, um, you know, any companies that would be like directly impacted by this, you know, say like a, someone on the product side at a DMP, um, it's, it's unclear whether these things are being tested 
test out. So um, I think the plan is to, um, you know, test out those those specific use cases um, so that uh, in the privacy sandbox um, in Chrome or, um, you know, how we're addressing this in Safari browsers, um, I think there's broadly a plan, but um, I, I don't particularly see like a defined plan. So um, my hope is that the even post COVID, um, the, the plan becomes more clear and that um, more players become involved um, in, in what this looks like. Okay, so I said I would talk about the open letter. So uh, BPA, has a, an open letter out in the marketplace from a number of signatories, which you can see on the right-hand side of the screen. Um, and in this open letter, we make the point that to be perfectly clear, without publisher permission, third parties have no contractual right to use data to create derivative works from the very assets the publishers have spent decades and billions of dollars to create. They're being enabled by loose restrictions within some RTB real-time bidding uh, platforms, which may ignore their responsibility and obligation to the media marketplace. And the publishing industry speaks with a unified voice saying the practice must stop immediately. And to be clear, it was reported in the press that that was interpreted to mean the use of data in the bid stream must stop. No, that's not the point. The point is the use of data in the bid stream without publisher permission to create derivative works, which are then you know resold. Um, and we had a three-prong approach to this. The first was education and awareness, and that's part of this. And we did a webinar at um, BPA University a couple of weeks ago on this point. And the second part was to look at the terms and conditions that might be in contracts to talk about this. And so we're happy to say we're looking at uh, version 3.0 that exists with the IAB and the 4As. It's a contract between the buyer and the seller. And it has very good terms and conditions regarding the use of data. What doesn't exist is a contract between a publisher and then a third-party platform or a data company. And so we're are, we're working as an industry group to come up with a uh, the clause for a template that deals specifically with this issue. And we're going to share that with IAB Tech Lab and collaborate together to come to the point where we could say this clause is available. So if someone Evan or Chris, I don't know if it would be Alliant or Distillery that might be on the end of that, or if it is the trading desk or someone on the other platforms that we saw when we looked at the user interface. Um, can can you speak to that? Perhaps I'll, I'll Evan offer a, or Chris? I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll offer a perspective on that, which is um, ultimately platforms have a need to play with that kind of data, right? Um, and so we think there's a legitimate business case for that for that to happen, and it benefits all parties of the ecosystem. We've seen all of the all of the studies that got rolled out around the deprecation of, of cookies through Chrome, um, and the impact that a lack of targeting has on on publisher RPMs ultimately. So, you know, I, I think from 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 our standpoint, um, and I apologize, there's a thunderstorm going on right now. Um, we um, uh, we think that this is a this is ultimately a good thing, and we think that anytime you're codifying explicit use rights in a contract between um, ultimately a, the, the data originator, the publisher, and whatever the endpoint is that's doing the modeling, that's a good thing. Um, you know, with who the contract exists, I can see it existing in two, fla in two flavors, right? One is, um, to use very vague terms, um, distillery is a service provider to a, a platform, uh, and therefore it would make sense to have the data rights platform, right? If we're building a thing that exists exclusively on 
their platform. Um, now, if it's something that's used across all platforms, then it would make sense for it to exist between the publisher and, and, and the data provider itself. Um, and I think, you know, speaking for distillery, um, we're exploring and open to both models and think um, ultimately both models make sense um, and, and really want to see which way the market wants to go. I think, you know, generally speaking, um, we want more direct relationships with publishers. Um, we think that that's where most of the targeting data is going to exist anyway. And it behooves publishers to try and build out targeting products. And, and we want to we want to take a, a, a leadership position and help with that. Great. Chris? Yeah, I think, you know, from Alliance point of view specifically, like where we're operating more and kind of building on the offline side, um, you know, we we think and support this uh, this idea. And, uh, you know, I think earlier we talked about the, um, the evaluations we do with all our members and our um, partners where we source third-party data um, to ensure that we have all all the proper permissions. So I think for us specifically, you know, we would, um, you know, just support where the industry is looking to go with this. All right, great. So we're literally uh, today, we, we started the draft. So we'll be working with the IAB Tech Lab on this um, coming. All right, oh, I'm sorry. Um, to your, both your points, you know, is there a benefit for B2B, oh, sorry. Is there a benefit for um, B2B publishers to work with data companies uh, directly? And if so, how? Yeah, 100%. So, you know, what the, taking a second to speak about where we think the world is going. Um, so, you know, we think there's going to be a portfolio of targeting solutions that replace kind of the one size fits all targeting solution um, that exists today, right? Target a bunch of cookies and you're done. Um, we think it's going to be a handful of solutions that will vary on, a, on an in initiative by initiative basis. Um, and, and so from that standpoint, one of the main solutions that we anticipate existing is going to be um, some form of targeting logged in users, um, which means that that'll exist with the publisher, right? They're going to be the ones with the logged in user base that can ultimately be put into a bid request and, and, and targeted against. Um, and so we think it, it, it's really beneficial um, both to the ecosystem and to publishers in particular to um, work with data companies to help them build out whatever their audience product will be, um, since we're anticipating a more fragmented ecosystem ultimately and, and, and want to um, help with the modeling, since that's really what we excel at anyway. So yeah, I, I would say an emphatic yes, um, B2B publishers can definitely benefit from a direct relationship with a data company because we work with data and know exactly how to do it um, and, and believe that we can help add that expertise to your organization. Yeah, I would echo that. Um, you know, this is in a space Alliance has typically played in, but um, as a data partner, you know, we fully support every, everyone, uh, you know, working directly with a partner to help them with their data needs, especially as things continue to evolve. Um, you know, where we have helped uh, B2B type publishers is you know, understanding the, um, you know, their targets more on the consumer side. So, you know, looking at those consumer attributes of the C-suite level of target companies and um, you know their targeted audiences. So I think you know there's interesting things that they can continue to do. Great. So then we just sort of have a recap: the data transparency and and the end game. Uh, ben, you want to kick that off? Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a lot of outcomes that we want uh, to facilitate with this new standard and compliance program. Um, I think that uh, the, the group has alluded to the, the first one that's, that's listed here uh, frequently throughout this, this webinar uh, about creating common language and common uh, uh, conceptual frameworks for actually uh, talking about data and, and deliberating the, its various pros and cons. Um, that didn't exist before. 
uh, and was uh, re reared its head quite a bit as we actually developed the standard when people were actually talking about the same thing, just using different language. Uh, and, and so um, working through that as an industry uh, is, I think, going to be quite valuable. Um, we also um, very much uh, need to acknowledge and address like this perceived commoditization of data within the ecosystem. Um, uh, we need to acknowledge that there are some folks who do it a whole lot better than others. You know, Bob's blog shouldn't be able to sell, you know, an auto, auto intender segment uh, at the same price as someone who puts a whole lot more time and effort in collecting and segmenting and cleaning and activating that data. And so we, we very much do want to see movement in uh, uh, in terms of prices, uh, unfortunately for, for Bethany. Uh, but unfortunately, your, your, your campaigns are probably going to be a whole lot more effective as a result, um, which is kind of what's listed here as well. Um, if you guys do use really, really great data. And then um, uh, lastly, we, we want to provide a foundation to, uh, to um, you know, just make better business decisions about not only the quality of the data and the, the kind of ethics and scrutiny behind it, um, but also make sure that um, we're uh, facilitating uh, a competitive environment, right? Uh, and that um, uh, anyone who has value to add to the ecosystem has, has a way of doing so via the standard. Uh, and so, um, uh, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty multifaceted, but ultimately, um, I think those are the, uh, the, the three kind of key areas that, uh, would make, uh, that we would like to see movement in kind of in the short term, short to midterm. And then on the fifth point, you know, BPA is very proud with our iComply tech assurance division to be the partner with IAB tech lab in the certification of the data providers. We definitely see that it's an opportunity for them to be, to use it as a differentiator, but also to give Bethany what she needs in her in, in her space to do her buying more efficiently and, and better. So thank you to our panelists. Uh, Glenn, do we have any questions from the audience that have come up? We've got a couple. First, uh, thanks to our four panelists. That was great stuff. We appreciate you guys joining us today. Um, the first question is to Ben, I think. Is age not included in the data label summary? Um, so I'm assuming the question is reference to um, the segmentation criteria. If, if age uh, is is a is a field, uh, so so basically age could the the attributes that we're talking about could be hundreds of thousands of different permutations and variations that need to be described via the segmentation criteria and other things that are in the field. But age itself is is not uh, a required field. Um, it's going to be a pretty important piece of information for a buyer to know within the segmentation criteria. So if a if a provider is not you know, it's, it's selling an, a, a segment of adults 18 to 24. Um, they need to uh, be pretty uh, sharp in the way that they describe why they think this group of people is, you know, are, are adults between 18 to 24 in that segmentation criteria. But age in and of itself isn't a required field, just the, the core determinants of the, seg of the attribute itself. Okay, Not great. Sure um, one other question, and this is either for Ben or maybe even for Glenn. Uh, are other organizations in the process of getting certified? Yes, there are. Yes. We can't name names, but uh, <laughs> I think out of the gate we had, was it seven or eight who've signed up? So the three that are now done, uh, we wanted to approach this in phases, right, Ben? So we wanted to get a first group out and then aggressively go after the balance of the market. So I think we've got seven or eight who've signed up. Yeah, um, that are actively going through their program. Uh, about yeah. 35 uh, companies have actually adopted the standard, uh, uh, eight of which have actually started going through the compliance program. Um, 
and uh, there's a letter of intent that upon the release of the standard uh, for most major publishers to also adopt, being spearheaded by Meredith and Hearst. Um, they're due up this year um, to start uh, baking this metadata and this taxonomy into their own proprietary platforms and, and processes. So, um, so yeah, there is a pretty solid movement kind of across the board. Uh, but again, compliance is different than adoption, uh, and so um, those numbers are going to be going to be a, a bit discrepant. Uh, but right now, we're, we're seeing about 30 or so companies uh, collectively that have either adopted or gone through the compliance program, or both. Okay, great. Uh, and that's it for the questions. All right. Hey, do you mind? Do you mind if I just jump in on that, yep, that yep. first question real quick? Please go ahead. Yep. Please. Uh, in the in the data label itself. Um, I, I think that question around age is specific to um, what CCPA and GDPR require around um, co uh, collecting um, uh, about uh, codifying when you collect sensitive information. So sensitive information might be age, it might be um, it might be race, it might be ethnicity, it might be any of those things. Um, Right now, that would probably live in the first version of this in the privacy policy. But um, I, I think, you know, uh, uh, being able to look at the da data label and um, zero in on, uh, you know, the the collection um, process for sensitive information would, would likely live in the privacy policy um, as the label stands today. Yeah, I think there's definitely an op an opportunity for next generation of the standard that we've worked on so hard as regulation or law becomes uh, fact. Yeah. All right. So our future town halls. We're going to take next week off for the July 4th holiday, but our plan is to come back on Wednesday, July 15th. And I don't have a firm commitment yet, but I am talking to a few companies to deal with content licensing what the revenue opportunities are for publishers, and also some cautionary tales about how publishers can protect themselves in that marketplace. So for all of you, uh, have a great 4th of July weekend. I hope you can do as best you can, have fun given the pandemic, uh, but get outside and have a good time. And thank you again to our panelists, Bethany, Ben, Evan, and Chris. I really appreciate you giving us your time today. And again, <clears throat> thank you everyone. I wish you all the best. Have a good day. Thanks for listening to this BPA University podcast. For more BPA University podcasts, visit iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify.